My name is Allison Deutsch. I'm a junior research fellow here in the IAS. Together with my colleague, uh, Peter Leary in the back, we've organized the seminar series on vulnerability. For those of you who don't know, vulnerability is one of our two core research themes here in the IAS this year. And we've, we've convened this series in order to interrogate that concept. What does vulnerability mean? How is it constructed? How is it figured? In what ways is it useful? In what ways is it problematic? So we've invited um, a range of academics from a range of disciplines to discuss those issues and what they bring up for them in relation to their work. This is the seventh seminar in the series. Um, last Wednesday was our sixth seminar, and that was a conversation between two contemporary artists, Lola Frost and Edmund Clark. They discussed the relationship of vulnerability to precarity and risk in the making of art. And our next seminar is going to be on the 22nd of May. It's 5 p.m. right here at our usual time. This is an unusual time for the seminar to happen. Um, and, and we'll be welcoming Professor Lila Mehta, who's from the Institute of Development Studies at the University of Sussex. Her paper is entitled Uncertainties and Vulnerabilities in the Context of Climate Change, Perceptions and Experiences from Above and Below in India. I'm really delighted to welcome Professor Anthony Julius today. Um, as an art historian, my own work is on the critical reception of modern life and impressionist painting and the various ways in which that art was seen as dangerous, destabilizing for its audiences. So it's a real pleasure to get to extend those conversations and think more about questions of censorship. And Professor Julius's talk today is drawn from his current research for a fifth book project on censorship of the arts and liberal democracies that's due for release in 2020. Professor Julius is a highly regarded lawyer and deputy chairman of law firm Mishkan Derea. Having completed a PhD with UCL English and taught at UCL Faculty of Laws, in 2017, he joined the faculty as the first ever chair in law and arts. He's a noted scholar and author who's written extensively on law, literature, art, and culture. In addition to articles and book chapters, he's the author of four books, T.S. Eliot, Antisemitism and Literary Form from 1995, Idolizing Pictures from 2000, Transgressions, the Offenses of Art from 2002, uh, and Trials of the Diaspora, a History of Anti-Semitism in England from 2010. Thank you, Professor Julius. Over to you. Thanks. So my plan is to talk about um, my research project and then to um, use it as the context for a, a some observations about um, questions of vulnerability in relation to censorship, and I'll be addressing the um, commonplace and entirely intuitive um, uh, two uh, positions on this topic. The first one being that vulnerability should properly, ethically elicit um, protective a protective response. We wish to protect the vulnerable. Um, it is a, it's a, an unexceptionable um, um, and quite basic moral sentiment. Um, and uh, the second um, commonplace, entirely intuitive um, position is that um, censorship, broadly speaking, is a bad thing. And so um, we might derive from a combination of those, um, of those two commonplace observations um, a, a proposition, a kind of prescription, which is that um, although vulnerability is something that properly elicits 
our protective um, instincts, those protective instincts should not include censorship. And um, I mean, I could imagine a whole lecture that would arrive at a kind of uh, endorsement of those commonplaces. Um, I mean, in a sense, I would be doing my job if I then sat down, because there is a sense in which that's actually a very reasonable position to take in policy terms. One should say the vulnerable should be protected from invasive harm, harm that they're unable to um, fend off. Um, yes, that throws up difficulties in the character of paternalistic interventions and so on, should have their own invasive and unwelcome consequences, but nonetheless, that's a reasonable position to take. And yes, censorship, broadly speaking, is a bad thing, so let's develop to the extent that we're required to policy positions that could ensure that we hit the first target while ensuring that we didn't actually fall foul of the second difficulty. And that's it. So um, if we just bracket that um, and call it the, the kind of the commonplace position um, and then consider what might be done, how one might think about these issues outside of the commonplace, I think various possibilities emerge. And what I want to do is to just um, step back from um, the, the question narrowly considered um, and offer a framing uh, context, and then I want to make a, a couple of um, observations um, about the topic. So, um, the first thing I'd like to do is to, is to, is to say this. I, what I want to say is that vulnerability and censorship, although they're concepts, they also have histories. There, there is a history of the concept of vulnerability, Vulnerability itself is a historically conditioned experience, condition. Um, one, of the, one of the problems, there, there are two problems. There are two problems that scholars face um, working in the humanities when they're um, exploring arguments that are transacted across time. Um, there, is the, there is the problem of representativeness, um, and there is the problem of historicity. And it's the second problem that concerns me here. Very briefly, the problem of representativeness is this. If, for example, you found yourself writing a history of anti-Semitism in England across a thousand years, um, you would, which is a problem that I faced a while ago, 800 years, um, you would, you would be constantly asking yourself, since you, you cannot write a history which is simply a history of everything, every bad thing that happened to or was said about Jews in 800 years, um, you, would be, you would be presented with the problem of what among those incidents can I safely take as representative of all the incidents? It's, it's a classic problem that any historian has. Uh, and there are various solutions to it, not one of which is altogether satisfactory. But that's one problem. That's not this problem. The problem of historicity is a specific problem that, that, that we wrestle with, which is this. 
How do you um, recognize and do justice to the historical character of concepts that exist in time without at the same time so um, deforming the concept that it's no longer recognizable as distinct in itself? So take the question of vulnerability. It's, it's completely clear that vulnerability in censorship terms means completely different things in the um, middle of the 19th century and the early decades of this century. Um, in the, in the uh, middle of the 19th century, um, the, the, and if we think about the vulnerability of young people in the context of censorship of literature, um, the, the concern is um, to mobilize state resources to protect young people who are vulnerable to influence from moral injury. They have no agency themselves. They are, they are so to speak, inert and open to invasive influence. Um, and the state intervenes um, by putting up a barrier between these influences and the, uh, the young people themselves. Um, the, the, there is no consulting of the said young people. Um, there is no, no real sense of their um, empirical existence. They, they have, uh, in the pejorative sense, a, a, only a conceptual existence. They are a kind of construct. Um, and um, there, it's only in, I mean, Dickens, for example, um, in, um, with Mr. Podsnap, who is on the one hand talking about, um, uh, who has his own daughter, but is also talking about um, the uh, blush that becomes at the cheek of a, of a standard young person. It's, Dickens precisely makes comedy out of the fact that um, that there is this gap between the concept of the vulnerable young person and the actual given young person. Um, but in any event, the, the, that's one kind of vulnerability. The, the, the vulnerability that, that, that relation to young people that we, we address now is, of course, completely different. Here it's charged with agency, um, and the um, advocacy, um, it comes from so to speak, within the ranks of the young and the students in particular among the categories of young person. Of course, that's another distinction. In the, in the middle of the 19th century, there is no distinction between the young person understood, denominated as of school age, and the young person understood, denominated as between 18 and 21 or 22, the student. But the older young person, this distinct category that itself is historically conditioned is, as I say, charged with agency in relation to the protection of its own vulnerability. And of course, I'm talking about trigger warnings and the rest of it. Um, so, so here you have a single concept of vulnerability, um, which is mobilized. It has a kind of strategic valence, which is quite different. I mean, one sense one might even say the difference has a binary quality about it, certainly in relation to agency, um, in the two different 
um, historical periods. How do you set out an argument which respects its historicity? How do you give a, a, a history without dissolving the argument into mere iterations? Um, the, 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 for me, the, the person who addresses this question and who we haven't really got beyond is Hegel. And what Hegel does is he ignores everything that isn't new about the development of a concept in time. So, so for Hegel, what is historic is what is always new, the newly emergent position, the, 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 the next step is what he's interested in. And, and for him, the way in which he reconciles history and philosophy is to limit history to um, the identifying of new steps in particular sequences. Nothing else is of any importance or significance. The rest can be uh, relegated to you know, what he called in the philosophy of history the great slaughter bench of, uh, of history. In other words, everything else that is utterly inconsequential and has to do with the meaningless suffering of, uh, of humankind, I mean the suffering that we inflict on each other. Anyway, um, so, so when I address the question of vulnerability, I address it um, in that historically inflected way. And um, in the context of my larger research, the way in which I um, analyze the history um, is um, in this Hegelian way, which is, to, which is to concern myself with the emergence of the new. And where the new is sufficiently big and has a sufficiently transformative impact, I am encouraged um, to identify that emergence as, the, as, the, as evidence of what we might call, in a kind of Kuhnian way, a new paradigm or a new uh, conjunction. So if, if one is, which is, this is what I'm doing, if one's writing a history of the censorship of literature and the visual arts in liberal democracies, this is my research um, uh, project, then um, the, uh, by reference to the emergence of the new and where uh, I'm ready um, to recognize um, uh, emergences of a particular character or size or complexion as heralding new conjunctions, if that is one's, so to speak, framing method, then that generates, in my view, and this is, the, this is where I am, so to speak, in my, in my own thinking and research on this, it, it generates an understanding of censorship um, which, um, which comprises a history of censorship, which comprises two conjunctures. And the conjunctures, for me, actually uh, can be given slightly um, over-precisely, uh, but I think um, um, uh, defensively, uh, can be given particular years. The, the emergence of the um, the first of the two conjunctions, 
of course, liberal democracy is a, itself, liberal democracies are very recent uh, phenomenon. You can only really talk about liberal democracy from around the middle of the 19th century. Um, I mean, you can talk about liberal democracy in America if you disregard race before 1865, before the end of the Civil War, um, uh, but you can't really. Um, you can talk about liberal democracy um, in uh, France in terms of universal suffrage and uh, in terms of um, certain um, uh, institutions of a liberal state and the glory and the rest of it. Uh, at certain points in the 19th century, but not stably. You can talk about liberal democracy in Britain as a kind of developing project with an increasingly uh, expanding uh, franchise and a kind of endless series of negotiations and renegotiations of democratic and liberal institutions. But essentially, you're looking at a period in the 19th century when you can say, broadly speaking, liberal democracy emerges as a recognizable state form. But if you then add that kind of general sense of something in the middle decades of the 19th century as being the first time in which it becomes possible to talk about a realized state form of liberal democracy. If you're then applying that to um, a, a specific history of censorship of the arts, then suddenly one year above all others um, is identified as the candidate. So that's 1857. Because it's in 1857, um, among other things, that the first Obscene Publications Act is passed in this country, it's called the Campbell's Act. Um, it's in 1857 that uh, Flaubert is prosecuted for Madame Bovary. It's in 1857 that Baudelaire is prosecuted for The Art of Evil. Uh, it's in 1857 that Melville um, writes his last novel, Confidence Man. Um, the response to which is so demoralizing for him, essentially gives up writing fiction, um, noting bitterly um, in his uh, notebooks, it won't pay, therefore it's banned. Um, and then in um, broader, more geopolitical terms, it's in 1857 that um, what traditionally we call the um, Indian Mutiny or the Sepoy Rebellion, or the first war of independence is waged, um, which has a transformative impact, among other things, in terms of the rule of India, on the way in which books are censored, and the way in which uh, literary works are reviewed and monitored uh, in the empire. It's in 1857 that there is a financial panic that Marx writes about what we regards as the first truly global uh, international crisis of capitalism, which has its own impact on bankruptcies of um, uh, publishers and so on, which of course raises questions of um, uh, the dependence of um, literature and the visual arts on the market, where which the market shapes choices. Um, and it's in 1857 that the Supreme Court adjudicates Dred Scott in the United States, which um, um, uh, invites a, a very uh, potentially tremendously interesting and consequential um, thinking about the, the part that race plays 
in American literature, precisely in terms of what is possible to say and what is not possible to say. And there's a lot of very recent, really interesting scholarship um, uh, which keys um, uh, race uh, to uh, the way in which American literature um, uh, is articulated, and, and precisely in terms of free speech. It's a very interesting book by Michael Gilmore uh, on um, uh, race and free speech um, in America. And of course, Tony Morrison has written uh, some very interesting stuff um, on um, uh, imagination as a kind of articulation of whiteness in America. So, and all of this is in 1857. So that's, that, it's really easy to say without um, kind of tricksiness. Oh, this is when um, we can begin to start talking about um, censorship of literature and the visual arts in liberal democracies. Because you have the, the so to speak, the, um, the subject, the democracy, and then you have the practice, which is censorship. And you can locate the one in the other um, in that year. Um, and then um, in that kind of... Uh, properly Hegelian way, you can identify a series of steps within that conjuncture, new steps, in which um, certain um, <coughs> <excuse> me, given <coughs> conditions or <coughs> criteria for censorship in that conjuncture become, are elaborated, become interrogated, and, and in the end um, collapse. Um, my view uh, is that, uh, that you can track the process of collapse essentially from the end of the Second World War through to the 1980s. Um, and it's a collapse that has a, a number of, uh, itself has an internal history, a number of stages. Um, uh, I, um, I, can, uh, I can just throw out the three obvious ones. I mean, I'm sure there are several of them. The first is the way in which the um, um, Nazi Germany um, represents itself as, as, so to speak, the, the utter counter to liberal democracy. Um, and and uh, within that, the way in which Nazi uh, Germany uh, becomes um, associated with the most brutal forms of censorship and uh, lack of freedom of expression and the rest of it. Um, it pulls the liberal democracies in the direction of affirmation of, of free speech, among which we would say is art free speech, along with religious free speech and political free speech. Um, the, the, um, um, the investigation of the culpability of uh, creative writers um, in the immediate aftermath of the... Um, of the Second World War uh, provides a, a forum for the consideration of um, the proper limits of, uh, of censorship. If, there are, if, the, if, if censorship has a role at all, this, the obvious example is the Ezra Pound trial, but um, there are others, of course, France had its own um, interrogations of, um, of uh, fascist or fascist sympathizing, uh, the collaborationist. Uh, writers and intellectuals, Céline uh, Gabe, France, the obvious example, but there were others. Um, Razalat, and so on. 
that's the first step. The second step is, is McCarthyism in America. Um, and um, the, um, the way in which that becomes resolved in the positive promoting of um, abstract expressionism um, by the cold warriors of the West as, as being, so to speak, an evidence of the West superiority, precisely this freedom, this creative freedom, innovation, and, and experiment in art, um, un unconfined by uh, uh, state censors, um, becomes a boast. It's quite interesting. If you look at the history of the reception of abstract expressions in America, in the first instance, it's it's it, you know, it's, it's object of extreme suspicion, Bolshevik art, and all the rest of it. Um, but then, then the the the, the propaganda opportunities uh, become clear. Um, and then, if you go uh, from west to east, the way in which um, Pasternak is is um, is Doctor Chivago is received can't be published there, can be published here, occasion for celebration. And it's understood that an implication of that is that one of the, so to speak, one of our weapons in the West is our commitment to art free speech, which then leads more thoughtful cold warriors to ask, well, where are we deficient in that? And that, in turn, produces um, proposals for reform, modifications in the law, legislation, Nine Student Publications Act is the eighty-seven one is succeeded by the, the new one here, which is a lot more generous towards writers. Um, and then you have the sixties and a kind of collapse of any um, of any uh, 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 kind of legitimacy for uh, censorship, which which has its kind of invisible filaments. Um, with the Cold War, but um, it also stands at its own distinct stage. So, aftermath of, um, of the, uh, of the uh, Second World War, Cold War, 1960s, by the 1970s, um, the whole kind of censorship paradigm, which, which you can uh, track from 1857, is in a state of crisis and collapse. Uh, and by the time you get to the 1980s, um, it's possible for writers and artists to um, pretty much say what they want about what they want, how they want. Um, and then there becomes a kind of a certain fringe concern about them, once again, um, about kind of extreme um, cases of actual. Um, harm done to whom the, the, the Linda Lovelace, the deep throats, the kidnapping of, of women, certain forms of pornography and so on. Um, but it ceases to be of interest to the literary and art world and it becomes, so to speak, a problem within an industry of, of whether that industry, the, the pornography industry, can survive in conformity with general legal obligations. No harm to employees and others. Um, so I think if one, if, if from a, from the perspective of the nineteen eighties, just to return to the question of vulnerability, vulnerability disappears 
as a justifying concept for, um, for censorship. Um, the, the, um, I mean, people say that um, if, if you want to find a, a moment, you could look at the um, prosecution speech in the Lady Chatterley trial in this country, where the, the um, uh, um, prosecutor um, says um, to the jury, is this the kind of book that you would want your, your wife or your servant? The, 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 the implication being that, that um, as he is prosecuting, he is addressing the jury, the jury of, of uh, heads of households who have an obligation to protect their, um, the people in their charge from injury or um, poison, moral poison. Um, and the, the kind of absurdity in so many different ways of that, of that question was an indication that, 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 so to speak, the life force of that um, impulse, the impulse the paternalistic impulse to protect the vulnerable, where the vulnerability was, so to speak, a projection, not based on any empirical investigation of actual risk, actual vulnerability, it just is kind of finished. And it's interesting because it's finished not because of very compelling arguments that are made against it, it's just finished because it kind of dies itself. I mean, anyone looking at the, the, the engagement between the, the, um, the pro and anti-censorship forces, the way in which the, the, the kind of argument fought itself out across that hundred and something year period would be struck by the utter failure of, so to speak, the liberal anti-censorship camp to make any impact at all on the pro-censorship camp. And the um, tremendous success of the pro-censorship camp in just killing itself. So if you, you, know, you must imagine a kind of encounter where the two armies arranged against each other and the, and the, the, the one army, the, 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 so to speak, of the liberals, is essentially shooting in the air and daydreaming and essentially kind of missing the point of the encounter, while the enemy, the, the, the forces of censorship, pull out their weapons and turn them on themselves. That is, that is the nature of the censorship encounter in, the, in the, what I call the modern censorship conjunction. Um, and, and there are very interesting reasons which fall completely outside the scope of my presentation today, why the liberals should have been so useless when it comes to defending arts and, and continue to be so useless. Uh, but that's, that's for another occasion. Um, so then, so then you get to the 1980s, and uh, so to speak, everything is fine, and and you get to 1989, and and uh, and everything is better than fine, because the Berlin Wall collapses, and that whole kind of counter system of censorship and oppression and stifling of the free expression of the arts and all the rest of it goes. The promise of it going suddenly becomes something which could be talked about and anticipated. Um, and it's then, it then becomes the end of, not just the end of history generally, but the end of the history of censorship 
except that in the very same year, as if, you know, God was an incompetent scriptwriter, in the very same year that the one conjuncture comes to the end with the fall of the Berlin Wall, the, the Rushdie fat rise issues, and that, and that, along with a whole series of other events in 1989, again, this extraordinary coincidence, the invention of the internet in 1989, the, the litigation over the veils in 1989, um, the uh, Tiananmen Square, if we're thinking of that, um, um, assertions of state power rather than capitulations of state power, the whole alternative model of modernity that China is now proposing, which includes the most rigorous censorship. Um, and so a whole a, a sense of something new emerges. So that, I mean, and so new and, and so transformative in its impact that it has the, the, the um, collective force of the arrival of a new conjunction. So, so I identify, just to summarize, I identify uh, two conjunctions in the history of censorship of the arts in liberal democracies. The modern censorship conjunction, which I date 1857 to 1989, given its own internal history. And then from 1989 to the present, which I call the contemporary censorship conjunction. And within that, um, uh, I identify two different concepts of vulnerability as being operative in the first conjuncture as described um, a, a vulnerability in connection with censorship, a vulnerability um, which is drained of all agency. And in the contemporary censorship conjuncture, a vulnerability which is charged uh, with agency. Where, where um, a vulnerability um, and this is not just in relation to young people, but vulnerability in relation to any oppressed group, self-described, and vulnerability in relation to any confessional group, religious group. And of course, where the, where the two are taken to be the same, then that only adds to the, so to speak, intensification of the agency um, is, is, uh, is characteristic of the censoring impulse. So that instead of the state intervening to speak for the um, um, utterly powerless um, uh, group to be protected, the vulnerable group, the, the, the very vulnerability of the group is weaponized and the state uh, uh, it very reluctantly is called on either to adjudicate rather than protect one party between the parties or to actually come to the defense of um, the, um, the writer, the artist, and so on, who in the earlier conjuncture would have only been understood as the problem. And, and I can't... Um, and I can't emphasize enough how very radical that transformation is, um, but how elided it is in the ways in which uh, we still talk about it. Because this is not to say 
that the vulnerable are really powerful and that it's just a hoax. It's rather to say that the, that the reception of vulnerability and the way in which it's articulated itself is different. It's, it, in other words, it's not to say there is, in the end, only one concept of vulnerability. It was the first concept. And when people now say, you know, when oppressed groups now say, or students say, we are vulnerable, and therefore you must not do this, that, or the other, they're not vulnerable. It's, it's, there's strength and belligerence and force and, 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 and so on. It's not that. One, one needs to recognize that vulnerability is being given a you know, perfectly proper but radically different meaning. Um, now, that's, the, that's the, the kind of the big picture. How this vulnerability works itself out um, is um, is a is another question, um, and um, I, I, let me let me just identify three different aspects um, of that, and then then I'll then I'll stop. Um, the the first aspect is that is this is the way in which. Um, uh, Questions of sensitivity are understood, and the meaning of sensitivity in the context of the larger question of vulnerability. Um, the, the second question is how this plays into um, what we understand and what is commonly referred to as um, identity politics. Um, and the third uh, question is. Um, the, the um, plural character of vulnerabilities. Because um, if we recognize that, 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 that it's wrong to say, just as a matter of fact, this is my definition of vulnerable, you students, you, you know, Christians in America, you Muslims in Britain, you you know, Orthodox, ultra-Orthodox Jews in Israel, you are not vulnerable. You know, you are making claims that you are not entitled to. If we don't take that route, and, I, and we shouldn't, then instead, what we need to do is we need to say, in the given understanding of vulnerability, um, we need to think about who else is vulnerable in these encounters. Um, plainly, among those who are also vulnerable are the writers and artists themselves. I mean, Rushdie was vulnerable, as we know. So, so what instead we need to talk about is a contest or a clash of vulnerabilities. So, so civility, uh, sensitivity, identity politics, and um, clash of vulnerabilities, plural vulnerabilities. These are three considerations that flow from the transformation in the understanding of vulnerability. Very, uh, very briefly, I don't know whether anyone saw, Saturday was a 
rather interesting, amusing, disturbing piece in The Guardian, which I know could identify you know, half the pieces in The Guardian on Saturday. But this, this was about the appointment of sensitivity readers um, who are retained by uh, uh, publishing houses now to advise on um, new works of fiction before they're published to ensure that um, um, inadvertently uh, offence is not given. Um, and these are the, the people offer themselves as, as sensitivity consultants um, at an hourly um, charge hour rate. And, um, and they, then they kind of opine on, um, on the characters, the, the plot, the, and so on. Um, this, is a, this is an emerging phenomenon that um, needs to be addressed. And it needs to be addressed in the larger, and one can just be humorous about it. And obviously there is, there is an aspect to it which is a bit like a racket. It just feels like a racket. And when I read it, it reminded me of the, uh, you know, the consultants who were retained um, in the 50s to advise on um, um, the communist uh, affiliations of um, employees in uh, businesses. Um, in Hollywood studios, there are always people who will offer themselves as experts on a particular, you know, political problem um, in order to um, give a kind of um, uh, award, a badge of health, a kind of certificate of good conduct. So, so just as businesses and studios used to say, well, we've got in Mr. So-and-so, who's been through our, our staff and is interrogated, and we can say we have no communists um, in our studio. So now uh, the publisher can say, well, we retained, you know, Miss So-and-so. She's a well-known sensitivity consultant. She's approved the, and, you know, and then one would get the Nihil Obstat, the, the kind of equivalent of the, of the, of the church um, uh, uh, sanction on the page. We can mock that, um, but 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 of course, I mean, it's almost always a mistake to mock. Um, I mean, not always, but almost always a mistake to mock because this opens out onto onto the question of civility. What do we understand by civility in a radically divided, multiply divided society? Um, people have to kind of rub along with each other without causing too much damage to each other. They wish to coexist. They don't know quite how they can coexist. Um, so that, that's the first, that's so to speak, the first research topic. The second research topic, identity politics, um, is related to the first, but, uh, but uh, has, a, uh, has a, this specific additional feature, which is, as we have seen, one of the unintended consequences of identity politics, which is essentially a kind of movement to the progressive left, um, um, has, has been that um, a, a, an exceptionally reactionary retrograde identity politics of white nationalism um, has asserted itself in America, but not just in America, um, and is drawing on the same language and in, and in literary and art terms um, um, has implications for the promoting of forms of literary and art which are exceptionally Problematic, not to say that they should be censored, um, but um, 
an identity politics which, again, weaponizes um, uh, certain kinds of um, artwork, certain kinds of novel. I mean, America, as we know, um, has a history of generating novels um, which speak for, you know, determinate political positions. Ayn Rand is the most obvious example, but there are others. Um, we don't make a distinction so readily between, or they don't, Americans don't make a distinction as we do in, in Europe, so readily between the aesthetic and the political. So, so that, that's, that's a second whole question. And the third, the, the question of plural vulnerabilities. Um, I, I mentioned a little bit in, in just the preliminary introduction of these three what I meant by that. But if you, if you go beyond the physical vulnerability, think, for example, about the vulnerability of the reputation of a body of work, say. Think about... Um, in the, in the week that Bill Cosby um, was, uh, was finally convicted, um, in, the, in, in the month that, um, that Woody Allen um, was finally exposed, um, where, where is, I mean, we may not care about the Cosby show, I think, anymore, but I think we do care about the Allen of, where does that lead? the reputation of that earth? What is the vulnerability of a, of a writer or an artist's work? And how is that to be understood? Um, is it collateral damage to the, to the necessary and proper um, assault on the moral character of the author? Or is it to be um, a protective? In some way, how should one distinguish between the two? Is it right to boycott Allen but to continue to show his films? Um, and so, very indecorously and rather incompetently, I come to an end um, because there's so much more to say. Um, but perhaps it would be sensible to pause at this point. I don't mind, I don't mind. Hi, Laura. What would you prefer? That's it. Okay. It's opened up so many questions, and I really appreciate it because we spent so much time on the concept of vulnerability, and that's something that, that's really important to us because we've had a real, we've had speakers with real distinctions thinking about vulnerability as a potential form of disempowerment, a problem, and then speakers who consider it as a resource, a form of potential empowerment. So, I'm just, I guess, I'm really struck by your, by your discussion of how vulnerability changes and how, you know, can we still call it vulnerability when people are constructing their own vulnerability, when they're, when they're sort of deriving agency from describing a source of potential disempowerment, but, but potentially remaining in the realm of the potential? And I, I wanted to extend that too, because as you closed, I was thinking about the fact that, um, so often when an artist's work is criticized or censored, it doesn't necessarily damage the reputation, the publicity of that artist. Sometimes it makes the reputation of the artist. Mm. And so I guess I just wanted to, to ask for a couple of further thoughts on that. Yes. 
I mean, I, I haven't seen it, or maybe I haven't seen it because it hasn't come out, or maybe it has come out, I just have missed it. But I understand there's a, there's a, I saw a clip of the, um, the documentary on Rachel Dolezal. Mm. You know, remember, she was, the, she was the person who passed as black, but in fact is fully white. Mm -hmm. um, I'm just responding to, to, to your interesting remark about people who choose vulnerabilities. Because she was, she was choosing the vulnerability of the black person um, because she was drawn to its energy, at any rate, uh, and, and the, the, uh, the kind of creative possibilities that it, um, it opened for her. Um, and she participated um, in a documentary about her, probably in the, in the vain hope that um, she would rehabilitate herself. But as a result, she exposed her own son to quite intrusive um, camera um, uh, interrogation. He's there in the clip saying, I didn't do this, and pointing at it as if the question itself had justified filming it. Um, so um, she's just digging the hole deeper for herself. I think, um, I think that vulnerability um, is, is uh, not what it used to be. Um, and I think it's a lot more complicated um, than it used to be. Um, and one of the reasons why it's a lot more complicated is because uh, it is no longer um, being attributed by powerful people um, to other people, but is being claimed. Um, there, as I said in my presentation, there were no people who claimed to be vulnerable and who campaigned for censorship in the 19th century first six, seven decades of the 20th century. Um, partly because they didn't consider themselves to be vulnerable and partly because they were vulnerable and they had much larger problems than um, access to uh, literature or how they were characterized in literature to deal with. Um, I think what I, then what I, where I land is I want to keep the word vulnerable I want to complicate it to make it problematical. Mm. I don't want to um, say because it's it's a kind of it's idle and it's offensive and it has it has no strategic value in any conversation worth having. You claim to be vulnerable, but you're not. Mm -hmm. That doesn't feel to me a useful move right. in any discussion. Right. Right. Well, it's also to think interesting to think about invulnerability in that context too. Because if we go back to the 19th century seems that so often the people who were vulnerable are the ones who were claiming other people to be vulnerable. Yes. What's really vulnerable about one is Olympia. I mean, if, who becomes vulnerable is the patriarch becomes vulnerable in a way. So it's the people who cry the loudest who are most nervous about it. If women see Olympia, I mean, has all kinds of What's different effects. What's it Right. <laughs> yes. yes. Of course. I mean, of course. You, you, um, you express anxiety about the vulnerability of others in order to consume your own vulnerability, your own sense of vulnerability, yes. Right, and just to return to the 19th century in the beginning of your presentation, when you talked about the new, I would love to hear a little bit more about how one can define, identify the new, because is it is the new what people notice to be the new, what, what people create the most outcry around? Is the new a different form of writing, a different form of painting? 
And in that case, aren't there, isn't there so much of that going on all the time, but is it retrospect that helps us to see the new? It's very, so interesting that, that Rushdie, early on when he's talking about satanic verses, says um, that what the novel is about is an investigation of the conditions for the emergence of the new. Well, he has in his mind the emergence of a new religion. Because in this very strange way in which the novel anticipates its own reception, I mean, just as actually Madame Bovary does in its own in its own way, it's also about the emergence of a new kind of sensory attention. Um, how we identify the new is difficult, um, and it may be that actually there is one kind of judgment which is the judgment of the time, and there's another kind judgment which is a hundred years later and who's to say actually which judgment is right there is a kind of privileging of the judgment of posterity but that's only because judgments of posterity are judgments are contemporary judgments made by people after the event they're just another kind of contemporary judgment at a different point in time I'm not inclined to think that the judgments of posterity are necessarily more valuable, although the test of time is a very well-known criteria of aesthetic value. Thank you. I think we should open it up. Are there some questions from the audience? I've heard a few things about um, your idea of censorship, because in the example that you mm. gave from 1847, it's struck me there are two very different yeah. kinds of restrictions Yes. Um, yeah. Do those two strands need to be separated, or perhaps you say something yes. about monitoring them together? Yes. I mean, I, I the, the, both censorship and vulnerability are exceptionally difficult, complicated, um, contested concepts, and I spoke about only one of them. Um, that there are there are significant arguments about the, the proper defining of the boundaries of censorship. That there is, I mean, if you look at, take Milton. Milton, Milton has the narrowest view in Areopagitic, but Milton says essentially censorship is about the um, pre-publication um, uh, review and proscribing of works of literature, written works. Um, he does not think that the prosecution of published works is censorship. I mean, it may be something else that we may not like. Um, let's give a different word to it, but let's not muddle it with the uh, reviewing in advance of publication of material with a view to modifying it. And we know what that looks like, even in English history, because that's that was the regime that governed uh, playwrights. So there were two censorship regimes, even within this narrow sense of censorship as coming from the state. There was a, there was a regime of pre-publication censorship, which was the regime for playwriting, and then there was a regime of post-publication censorship, which was essentially a regime for novel writing, and no one cared about poetry. I mean, essentially, that was, if you look at the three kinds of literature, 
Swinburne came close, he thought, to being prosecuted. But it's essentially, if you were a poet, no one cared. If you were a novelist, um, you just risked the 1887 Act. But if you were a playwright, you had to ingratiate yourself with the Lord Chamberlain's men, because otherwise you couldn't get your play on the stage. So um, you could take the view that censorship, properly understood, is to be somewhere within the upper and lower range defined by those. Or you can take the view that um, censorship is not to be confined to operations of the state, but instead, or rather in addition, lives in civil society, um, and that um, it's, it's kind of nonsensically liberal um, to believe that only the state can be an instrument of oppression. And you, you used the P word earlier on. If you think about, for example, the um, uh, uh, history of the kind of major, major women poets in the 19th century in America, um, it's, it's absurd to think about censorship purely in terms of queer representation, particularly in a, in a country with the, with the First Amendment, not that the First Amendment was unhelpful to writers until the 1960s. Um, you, you altogether evacuate the concept of censorship of meaning unless you take into account um, the, um, the way in which censorship um, understood as a kind of interdicting of um, creative work by um, institutional forces. Um, if, you, if you don't acknowledge that as censorship, um, then um, you're radically impoverished, um, your understanding of censorship. And of course, um, uh, patriarchy is one thing, capitalism is another overlapping thing. Um, if you don't, um, if you're not prepared to identify as censorship uh, decisions that are generated within an economy of publishing, um, then I think again, what's missing? It, the whole, the whole undertaking, the whole undertaking of investigating censorship becomes so attenuated, so um, um, kind of denuded of its character so drained of its force that it ceases to be a, an investigation worth undertaking. Yes. Yeah, absolutely, because of far broader duties beyond the legal. Yes, yes, yes. While at the same time, while at the same time, I hope respecting the differentia specifica within that concept of, of censorship. If you understand censorship as an agent's interdiction, so there has to be some agency involved. It can't be wholly and impersonally systemic, which is where you get into difficulties with concepts like patriarchy or capitalism. But if you, if you, if you have a generous conception of agency, you allow it to be collective, um, but you don't limit it to the state. I think that's, a, that's a, a space in which it's possible to undertake investigation, censorship in a liberal democracy. Um, which um, which does justice to its to its kind of problematic dimensions without at the same time treating everything as mm. censorship. 
carrying on with the broadness of that, this is a book about literature and the visual arts. Are you finding that's difficult to pull together or there really are so many commonalities between them that it's, that it's not such a challenge? It is very difficult to pull together and I probably am failing. And I'm reminded, I'm reminded of a remark in, in Kafka's diary where he says, people ask me what I've got in common with the Jews. I don't know. I don't know what I've got in common with myself. You know, I, I, I'm trying to, to find commonality between literature and the arts. I'm not even sure what literature, what works of literature have in common with each other. I mean, the, the closer you look, the more disintegrative or centrifugal one's, one's investigation becomes, as we know. I mean, I, you know that famous, the famous um, preface to uh, uh, Paul Demand's uh, Allegories of Reading, where he says he started out by, by writing, by planning to write a study of romanticism, but he found he couldn't get beyond a sentence in Rousseau's um, Confessions. So, so I'm, I'm constantly oscillating between tremendously impressive generalizations, which are embracing all the arts, and on the other hand, um, struggling to make single sense of a single sentence. Well, of course. I mean, as an art historian, it's so we spend so much time considering the difference between different forms. How does photography address us in a different way than painting does? And those things are absolutely at the heart of debates about censorship. But our language for describing them is really impoverished. So you get phrases like, "Well, no, when I see it," but yeah. it seems harder. It seems hard to do better than that in some cases. Yeah, but we must try. Yes. Jim. Uh, I was wondering about another uh, big concept that's sort of floating behind all of this, and that's about the market, the market in liberal democracies, democracies uh, as it's sort of, you know, by the 20th century, it's seen as this moral agent and one that's able to adjudicate between certain positions, like you know, the Brandeis' marketplace of ideas in the US, and about how that, and it seems like that. Um, Homes. Co yeah, Homes. Oh, yeah. Homes. Okay. Uh, and that coexists nicely then with the Cold War um, situation where uh, liberal democracies uh, are on the side of free markets and free speech. Um, and how that shifts and where that is at. Yes. Well, uh, yes. Um, yes. So, first of all, if you don't take into account. Um, operations of market censorship if you're studying the censorship of liberal democracies you can't study censorship of liberal democracies that's a point I've just made but the second point is of course um, this is something I touched on earlier but then didn't develop which is this whole question of why liberals are so bad at defending literature and the arts it's precisely because they have this rather strenuous conception of the marketplace of ideas and competition and essentially what's mobilized in the criteria of truth and falsehood, um, that they, these are not terms that are, um, uh, that, that are useful in discussions of uh, literature and works of literature and the visual arts. I mean, uh, those works are not to be understood in terms of what's true and what's false. They're not to be understood in terms of, of uh, competition for determination of who is right and which is right and which is wrong. It, it's a completely different, it demands a completely different understanding of, of the, the nature of 
the the kind of the the ontology of the work of the literary work um, when it comes to developing arguments for the defence of, of free speech. Liberalism, as we know, um, begins with um, addressing a religious problem, which is how can different confessional groups coexist, and then it and then it develops into addressing a political problem, which is how can different political groups coexist. Um, and then there are questions of religious free speech and political free speech, but it never actually has to address the question of how do we how do we accommodate artworks in our society and what is the nature of art free speech and how is that to be defended. So uh, one thing we know for sure is that it's not to be defended by reference to marketplace ideas. No. No, I mean, I, no. It, it, because, I, because I think that, um, because I do think in, in conjunctural terms, and I think we're inside this conjuncture where vulnerability has these complications. You know, there are vulnerabilities in the plural, the vulnerabilities related to concepts of civility and so on. Um, I, all I can anticipate is that, is that these different aspects will play themselves out in various ways. But beyond that... questions? Yeah, Peter. So I'm wrong to mention the uh, the question you touched on. There is a there, there is a, a I mean there is a strong sense in which there are continuities of censoring uh, uh, or interdicting interventions by religious groups in 1989. It's not the fact; it's the um, uh, the prosecution of the curator of the Medvedev um, exhibition in Cincinnati, the, the uh, portfolio X, um, and it's the uh, tax on the uh, uh, Hollywood studio and the, uh, the uh, theatres that uh, showed um, the Martin Scorsese um, film um, about the last days of uh, Christ. Um, it's um, it, in America, you can say there is that deep continuity. Um, but, but the novelty of the of the fatwa, I think I mean one could just call out the novels. First of all, it was uh, uh, in relation to the fatwa itself. 
it was an intervention by an illiberal society in a liberal society's uh, uh, internal operations, put to one side global publication. Essentially, it was, um, in the sense in which I'm describing it, it was the exact opposite, if you think, of what happened with Dr. Zhivago. In, Dr. in the case of Dr. Zhivago, the publication was in Italy, I think it was. Um, it couldn't be published in Russia. The, the, the West, so to speak, intervened in the East. Here, it's flipped. So that's, that's one. Second is it's Islam, which is kind of radically new as an agent. I mean, certainly. One of the, one of the one of the significances of um, 1857, which I touched on, was the defeat of the Sepoy Rebellion, which was in part, of course, a, a defeat of nationalist forces, but it was also a defeat of Islam in India and the collapse of the final Mughal empires. So, so 1857, in a way, begins with his complex historic defeat of Islam. And 1989 um, opens... Um, with a tremendous reassertion of the power of Islam. So that's a second difference in the context of a broader resurgence of religion as a force and of confessional groups as a force. Um, and that has something to do, I think probably quite a lot to do with the collapse of um, the Soviet Union and the disintegration of a kind of leftist program revolution. Um, which was substituted of religious, even kind of kiliastic um, sentiments deep in the culture. So, you know, all of that's going on as well. The, 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 the radically new is often the, you know, the, the, the long-buried ancient. So, you know, there's that quality to it as well. Killing themselves. Turning their weapons on themselves. Now, obviously, if the nature of censorship is substantively different, then maybe there isn't that inevitable necessity. But, I mean, arguably, if what we're viewing is a different form of the same phenomenon, then maybe you could say, well, this censorship is because of its very nature in due course. It might be a hundred year period, it might be a thousand year period, is also inevitable. Yes, you could do. I mean, I just don't know. I just don't know. And how would you not make any specific claims that whether or not this censorship is a different form to the sort of 19th century? No, I am making. I mean, I'm yes, I'm I'm making the claim that it's a it's it that the the conjunctural terms are different, um, but they're sufficiently similar to allow one to talk of those terms as a inhabiting a succession of conjunctures that are recognizably all to do with censorship. So it's a kind of um, qualified um, argument in, in that way. Um, I'm just, um, 
um, it's just very. I mean, it's just very, very difficult to uh, to offer. It just feels like punditry to offer to offer predictions. And I, 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 I uh, when I was undergraduate, my first year I, um, uh, I, at university, I went to hear George Steiner um, give a talk about uh, give a kind of tour de raison of uh, literature in the world. And, um, and he gave this, you know, tremendously impressive, quoting in 53 different languages that various novelists were writing that year. And someone stood up and said, what about the situation in Iceland? <laughs> partly, I think, to catch him out, but partly also in adoration of him. It's that kind of weird combination. And he immediately started offering predictions of, you know, the, the situation. Iceland, and, and I've always remembered that, and it's been a kind of cautionary tale. <laughs> <laughs> well, when it comes to the first conjunction, now you were talking about that 1990 Maplethorpe exhibition, mm. and there's this fantastic caricature of the censor embodied as a male figure with his hand over a woman's face, saying, "Yes, you can't see this." And, um, and and you know that's so that's so sort of absurd, and we all recognize that absurd. And I like to look at it alongside some impressionist caricature of the 1870s and 1880s with the exact same two figures of the husband saying that the wife, especially if she's pregnant, she can't go in the exhibition. And you wonder if it was perceived as equally absurd then. I suspect not, but of course it always has that kind of, it's a caricature, so it's supposed to be funny. But I wonder if the way that we think vulnerability as a projection, the way that we figure it, the way that we understand that caricature is one form of projecting what vulnerability looks like, has really changed in terms of the power that we attribute to groups like pregnant women, for example. Yes, I suppose it's possible. But I, I, in terms of absurdity, I agree that that is absurd. But I don't think anybody comes well out of the Maplethorpe I mean, the defence, the, the experts who are mobilised in defence are just seem ludicrous. So, so, which is, it's the kind of limitation of the, of the formalist defence. I mean, what, what happened? I mean, Zola, for example, says in defense um, of uh, his own work. It's an exercise in form. You know, you complain about my novels, you say they're shocking, sensationalists, and so on. Um, my work is to be understood in the same way that you understand the work of an artist who paints a nude. All he's interested in is the shape, the outline, and all the rest of it. Nothing so carnal as the... Um, I mean, Nietzsche then says in response to that, so, um, you know, was Pygmalion making some mistake when he fell in love with the statue of but um, so, so the, the, the formalist defense in response to the censor in charge of obscenity was a very familiar one. This is an example of what I mean about shooting arrows in the air because plainly a work can have formal properties and erotic properties. Um, and, 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 the, which is, and who's to say that form doesn't have its own erotic possibilities? But when, when, I can't remember who it was, was giving evidence in Maplethorpe um, in defense of the images in the trial and was saying, I mean, some of Maplethorpe's images are ex, you know, extraordinarily out there. Um, and to, 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 you know, to talk about uh, you know, one man peeing into the mouth of another man as being an exercise in form only, that that was the way to, I don't know whether you saw that evidence, but I mean, that that was the only way in which one, would, one properly should be looking at that picture. It's just ridiculous. 
I mean, the jury came to the right decision, but I'm sure it was not aided by that ridiculous piece of, of expert evidence. So that's a, you know, the, 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 the prosecutors imploded while the defense experts made fools of themselves. <laughs> that's the story of Appleton. I think that's an excellent place to end. Thank you so much for joining us.